Welcome to episode 220 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and for today's news roundup, and it's just going to be a news roundup today, I'm joined by Maury Schenk from our London office, by Gus Hurwitz, who teaches law at the University of Nebraska, by Megan Reese, who is a senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and today's host. Uh, why don't we jump right in? It is um, hangover week for GDPR. Uh, it went into effect, and uh, a lot of uh, things happened. Uh, there had been a lot of anxiety leading up to it. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, what... Um, what did we learn about GDPR once it took effect that we didn't know before it uh, actually uh, descended upon us? Well, I would say we continue to learn. There's four words I'll use, uh, detail, ambiguity, confusion, and litigation. Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of people about GDPR and speaking about it and saying that this is an evolution of European data protection law not a revolution. Most of what's there was there before, but there is a lot more detail and some of it's stricter, um, including on consent, which has produced some of the confusion. Yeah, ambiguity, some of the detail is, is clarifying, but a lot of it I think is probably intentionally ambiguous because GDPR was a compromise between privacy advocates and, you know, business interests. And so there's a lot of unavoidable ambiguity on which we're waiting for guidance. What has this meant? There's been some confusion. My favorite example is the Church of England told people that they weren't allowed to pray for um, parishioners anymore without individualized consent, although that's been relaxed to the extent they're on the, they're on the prayer board. Um, a lot of these reconsent emails... That well, I, 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 I have to say, Maury, I just have to say, uh, uh, I have always thought that um, in Europe and on the left... Uh, um, Data protection is a kind of secular religion. I'm surprised to see that it's actually displacing uh, the Church of England, which, you know, at least in the past has been a religion. Uh, uh, so um, uh, the EU's jurisdiction extends to God. Well, I've been saying to people that uh, the jurisdictional provisions of um, GDPR expansion is probably the most important change. Um, I'm not sure it does get to God, but this could be evidence of that. Yeah, and there's been other confusion. These, you know, many reconsent emails um, that have been sent, which are largely unnecessary. The Chicago Tribune and the LA Times have stopped uh, providing content to Europeans, and I'm not sure what that's about. Maybe consent to receiving ads. And there's litigation. You know, Max Schrems, uh, famous for litigation against Facebook, has filed complaints against Google and Facebook already, and that's likely to lead to litigation. ICANN has sued a German um, ISP for stopping for a gathering some who is information. And uh, that lawsuit, at least the preliminary injunction piece of it, has been thrown out pretty quickly. So where is this all going? I don't know. I think we're going to see more confusion than litigation. There will gradually be guidance. Probably big players will have an advantage um, because it's so complicated, it's pretty hard for the small players to sort through. I thought and that there was there could the... be more confusion coming down the road. 
Go ahead. That, I thought that was the most interesting part of this. Um, a, a, the idea that uh, at the end of the day, a, um, a regulation that was aimed at hurting Google and Facebook uh, and the other big U.S. tech companies probably ends up cementing their position because they have the uh, the people and the sophistication to meet even the ambiguous requirements. Uh, and for a lot of people, moving data to the cloud as a way of making sure that it stays in the jurisdiction that it's supposed to, um, it may turn out to require that they abandon their own databases and, and start relying on Amazon and Microsoft and Google. If I can uh, jump in on that point, yeah. Robert, um, there's a additional element that I think is surprising to a lot of people. Since companies need to get um, express consent uh, from consumers in order to uh, use their data, there's a brand effect that uh, the incumbents benefit from that startups don't have. If a company sends you an email saying, hey, we want to use your data for such and such, you sign up for your service, and you recognize the name of the company, you're more likely to say, okay, this is a company I know and am willing to work with. If it's a startup with absolutely no name recognition, um, even if you signed up for their service, when you get that email, you might be less likely to say, okay, I trust these guys. So there's a pernicious and I think subtle uh, way that this is even further going to cement the incumbents. We're seeing that in ad tech already, it looks like, uh, as uh, Google is able to, uh, well, actually, Google is, is saying, if you uh, don't meet our standards, we're not going to be uh, uh, letting you use targeted ads through uh, particular uh, uh, ad tech firms, but, um, you know, you can always use Google. Um, and so um, it is going to hurt the smaller ad tech firms that are depending on data and, as you say, don't have the name recognition to get it from from customers. Uh, well, this is the AT&T effect. Uh, uh, AT&T famously uh, turned uh, hostility and public anger and regulation into a monopoly uh, in the 20s, uh, and uh, we're going to see something similar arising from GDPR, I'm guessing. Uh, Maury, anything else before we move on? Well, the one other thing to mention is the e-privacy regulation is uh, coming down the path. And this it's is even this more is, this one is just GDPR. It, most of it, it you know, most things require consent. Uh, I don't know whether the confusion around GDPR is going to slow down that process, but if we have conflicting sets of requirements under GDPR and under e-privacy for electronic communication services, it could be even more of a mess. Exciting. Okay. Uh, Gus, last minute, uh, last words on this? Uh, I have a, a lot of thoughts and questions about it, but uh, the, the biggest thing that I'm going to say is economists start your engines. There's a great natural experiment that's about to start here with how firms differentiate in their treatment of U.S. and European uh, consumers. And one question that I have uh, a lot of folks, including myself, have characterized GDPR as a tax on U.S. firms by Europe. Well, as we start to see American firms charging European consumers in exchange for uh, more GDPR-compliant or uh, less privacy-burdensome uh, uh, versions of their services, I'm not sure which direction the money is actually going to flow. It could be more money coming from European citizens to U.S. firms, 
than from uh, U.S. firms going to European regulators. So that will be uh, real interesting to watch. Okay, well, that's the, you know, the incidence, uh, where, where the uh, incidence of taxation actually falls is always an open question and uh, it'll be fun to watch. Uh, so, uh, Eugene Kaspersky, uh, has uh, lost all of his, or both of his lawsuits uh, in the district court, all in one decision. Um, Gus, uh, uh, any surprises in that decision? I don't really think so. Um, I think uh, Kaspersky is in a situation where he's, I'd call this, uh, he's in the uh, SEO position where uh, the company's reputation is so much implicitly in the toilet, fairly or unfairly, um, that uh, I think their best bet is going to be spending a lot of money on lawyers and litigating this through every single venue for the rest of uh, the company's existence. Um, the uh, opinion itself, uh, the most interesting thing perhaps was that it combined both of its suits. Uh, the fun part is that the NDAA suit was basically a bill of attainder suit. Um, and the analysis, I think, really comes down to uh, this isn't punishment on the part of uh, the government. In order to be a bill of attainder, it needs to be uh, a uh, bill specifically targeted at an individual and punishing that individual, an individual or specific entity. Um, and the uh, judge here said basically, look, there are legitimate concerns that many uh, government actors have expressed, and this is about addressing those concerns. It's not about punishing Kaspersky, um, uh, which uh, takes this out of the range of Bill of Attainder land. It also really takes it out of the range of anything that can be uh, redressed by the courts. It's hard to say that there's a definite injury, injury to Kaspersky here. Uh, so we've got uh, standing concerns. But even if there were, these are generalized reputational concerns that a lot of people have about dealing with a arguably Russian-controlled or potentially Russian-controlled security firm. And there's nothing that a lawsuit can do to address that. Um, so uh, there's nothing the courts can do, no standing, it gets kicked out. Um, so uh, I, I expect we'll see an appeal. I expect we might see Kaspersky trying to strike out through litigation at anyone and everyone else. Um, but uh, the reality is in the current climate, uh, fair or not, uh, I think Kaspersky is pretty much a uh, uh, dead security business from the American perspective. Uh, the interesting part, of course, is the uh, reports that their software is so deeply embedded in various systems um, and infrastructure that even though uh, DHS and the NDAA require American uh, federal agencies to remove and stop using Kaspersky software from their systems, they aren't able to. They can't find it all. They don't have funds to uh, replace those systems that have it integrated. Um, so uh, uh, that's a interesting parting gift, perhaps, from uh, Kaspersky. Yeah, the the way the the ruling um, was worded was that the NDA does not inflict punishment because there was an actual perceived national security threat that originated with Kaspersky. And that just shows there's going to be a lot of leeway in similar incidences if if there is a real perceived threat. This just, it's not going, 
it it doesn't seem likely that it's going to go in Kaspersky's favor as they they start moving to more litigation, which they've already announced they're going to do. It's just a pretty it was a pretty weak case to begin with, but this national security um, objective is is pretty strong here. All right. Um, it does sound like uh, uh, they're they're toast in the courts, and um, as soon as we find them toast in the federal government, uh, and probably hurting in a lot of U.S. Uh, uh, companies, they still seem to do, be doing okay in Europe. Though. Yeah, there's what they called an empty right to sell in the U.S., and they said that because this is only a small part of the market. So. Yeah. All right. Um, so. The um, Iranians are trying out, actually, on U.S. Uh, uh, electrical providers, uh, this very dangerous Trisis uh, um, software, malware, uh, that is a variant of the software that attacked um, the Saudis and mm-hmm. actually uh, 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 shut down uh, a, uh, some of their uh, uh, petroleum processing, at least for a time. Um, they haven't actually triggered it, but it's sitting out there. Right? Uh, Megan, uh, how big a threat is this? I, I think it's a pretty pretty big threat compared to other things we've seen. The The Saudi case in, in August of last year was really interesting in that it could have easily caused an explosion. It should have caused an explosion, which would have had kinetic effects. And so suddenly all of all of these discussions about when the law of armed conflict is triggered when it comes to cyber uh, attacks, we're, we're actually seeing a point where it could actually be triggered if if this stuff had a similar kinetic effect to what the Saudis could have experienced and didn't because of so circumstances. What do you think? Is this uh, sort of like the DDoS attacks that they did against our banks, a uh, uh, shot across our bow that they have uh, options uh, if they decide they don't like uh, our it's, decision to renew sanctions? It's definitely the looming, the looming threat of saying that we actually have capabilities that we could we could enforce or enact if you guys do something we don't want. And this just plays into the broader Iranian um, objectives that they want to say, hey, we are a big power in the Middle East. We're not reliant or we don't have to go along with what the U.S. says. So if the U.S. unilaterally withdraws from the Iranian deal, we actually have our own capabilities in place already. This this is one of the more interesting stories that we should keep watching and it shouldn't fall from the news which it might if nothing big happens but just knowing that foreign actors have the ability to do big bad things in the US if they really wanted to is pretty big deal so i i coincidentally in the last week there have been reports from the US government about the two vulnerabilities that uh, Iran has shown an inclination to attack. Uh, There was a report from DOE uh, uh, and the Department of Energy and DHS about grid resilience. Mm -hmm. And then there was another report from the Commerce Department and DHS about how to respond to botnets. And I have to say, I want to be kind here. But I can't. Uh, these, these reports are terrible. Uh, they, 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 they're, they're full of soothing words and they scare the crap out of me because they say, in essence, yeah, we got no idea. 
Yeah, the 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 really weird thing that you tend not to see in threat reports or strategy reports is this repeated discussion that the U.S. is already pretty good at all of this stuff. Yeah, in a general way, you know, if, 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 you know if, if, if a tree falls, we're pretty good at getting the, the power out. And yeah. then they kind of, they say, but, you know, if it were a cyber attack, we don't know if our abilities would, would work. Exactly. So, <laughs> so simultaneously saying we're, we're already kind of awesome at everything and then throwing in, oh, we don't actually know the scale of what would happen is a not exactly cohesive report yes. strategy. I, I, well, and, and on the on botnets, which is a, ought to be a more manageable uh, uh, problem, uh, you know, I love this. There's 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 a statement in here, uh, right up in the executive summary, uh, that when it comes to especially the Internet of Things, market incentives do not currently appear to align with the goal of dramatically reducing threats uh, uh, arising from botnets. Well, yeah. Uh, so there's a market failure, and how do they plan to address that market failure? I don't know. A serve tea and cookies. Yeah. Discussions. Yeah. Uh, it's, obviously, it's, it's very sad. It's uh, that would be three or maybe four administrations in a row that have no idea what to do. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't. This may not lend a lot of faith that there's an obvious strategy for it. Let's just say that. Or, you know, look, I've been in government and, and sometimes when you're instructed to write a report, but you can't get any – nobody cares enough to make the hard decisions that will produce a report that's coherent. You just write the report. And so you you, you back all the cliches up to the uh, loading dock and lo- unload them. Uh, and uh, um, you just have to write a respectable report that, that – gets above 35 pages uh, and uh, is confusing and bland enough that no one really wants to read it, and you're done. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 it wanders through the um, uh, the clearance process, and everybody takes out anything that looks like substance, and uh, uh, you send it to Congress. So that may be what is going on here. But given that the threat is like here now, yeah. you'd think they'd be doing something a little more than this. Yeah, and ideally there's something going on behind the scenes that they <laughs> yes. oh note that there was a laugh when I said that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh okay. Uh now we're gonna try a uh uh a new um uh, inst- we're going to try our, our lightning round, uh, uh, just quickly covering the stories that we wished we had more time to talk about. Uh, uh, Russia has actually formally asked Apple to help them in bringing Telegram to heel by refusing to um, distribute uh, the Telegram app until Russia is satisfied with its access. Maury, one sentence. What do you think? This East-West battle is going to continue, and if the Russians make progress, Western law enforcement is going to use Russia as an example of the kind of help they need in dealing with encrypted messages. Oh, then, of course, uh, we know 
Apple will stand for principle and privacy and uh, profits. Um, and so my guess is in the end of the day, since Apple's already agreed to do this kind of thing for the Chinese, it's going to be tough for them not to do it for the Russians. All right, North Korea is uh, – there's a lot of stories saying North Korea is getting credit for all this peacemaking uh, and at the same time it's spreading malware around uh, uh, launching new attacks, uh, uh, cyber attacks. Um Megan, how significant are those headlines? So I would say expect North Korea to be North Korea. It's not going to change just because it's pursuing another nuclear agreement, as we've seen the last few nuclear agreements. So my, I noticed the second time I read that story that the um, North Koreans are sending out phishing emails with references to the peace talks, mm-hmm. which raises the possibility that all of the stuff that Kim Jong-un is doing is really just clickbait. Oh, yep. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so tra- right after we predicted that there would be problems uh, uh, giving ZTE relief last week, uh, uh President Trump announced he's given ZTE relief from the uh, uh, Commerce Department uh, uh, penalties for their uh, uh, failure to abide by U.S. export control law. At the same time, the uh, Congress is working on locking those uh, uh, sanctions into place. Uh, um, Megan, Gus, uh, uh, how's that going to turn out? Uh, I think this is one of the more interesting things that's going to be going on in the next couple of months. Congress is not happy that their in, that their home state interests are being affected by trade on national security grounds, while something that has a pretty legit national security problem, ZTE, is going to get a free pass. And I'd say uh, it's interesting to compare this to uh, what's going on with Kaspersky. And uh, comparing it to uh, DHS's binding oper- operational directives uh, process under FISMA, uh, uh, the ZTE approach, I think, is far more problematic. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. I think Congress will definitely win this against uh, the president, but it'll be interesting to see longer term how uh, national security interests play out as a Trump card in this area. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, although this is a hard problem for uh, at least House leadership. Uh, are they going to give the president a, a, a black eye uh, by letting the appropriations bills go through with uh, um, instructions that are contrary to the president's uh, uh, views? They may, uh, but I think it's going to be a tough one for, for Paul Ryan on his way out the door. Mm-hmm. Okay, last uh, topic. Uh, uh, Lots of coverage uh, in the Washington press in particular about uh, um, uh, system signaling system seven uh, uh, and how it can be misused to gain access to a whole bunch of American phones uh, uh, and Related after a fashion uh, is the use of stingray zimzi catchers to uh, identify the locations of particular phones, uh, including apparently the president, since he's now using uh, a couple of different uh, iPhones for his uh, tweeting and phone calls. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, how significant is this, and uh, is all this uh, attention actually going to result in a more secure? Uh, phone system. 
Oh, I hope so. Um, the way that you uh, framed this when you uh, suggested uh, that we talk about it, Stuart, was as a, a privacy issue. I think it's really a more a pure security issue. Um, SS7 uh, really is uh, the protocol that was developed initially uh, starting in the 1970s and implemented in the 1980s, back when we really had a monopoly, then uh, oligopoly-ish uh, telephone network. Uh, it's been remarkably unchanged in the last 30 years, largely, I think, due to a combination of inattention and lack of incentives and also the FCC making it difficult uh, for uh, uh, regulated firms to uh, really make substantive changes to it. Um, and it was designed in an era when all the components of the network were either controlled by a single entity or was a small number of trust-based relationships, um, and it doesn't have security built in. Um, I would say uh, the uh, a real vanguard of where change is happening here isn't with uh, the security concerns that the Washington Post was addressing. Um, the FCC, uh, in order to address the robocalls problem, has been working with industry uh, and uh, has been working to implement or allow implementation of encrypted authentication protocols over SS7. Um, and I think we are well past the time that the signaling system for the telephone network. This is really exciting, sexy stuff, I know, uh, is ripe for an overhaul. Well, I, something like, basically the, the, the rule as I understand it is if, if other people are not reading your SMS messages, it's because you are of no interest to anyone. Uh, uh, but that's the easiest thing to uh, to get access to with uh, uh, SS7 uh, exploitation. Uh, but so kind of to my surprise, you can actually do intercepts about half the time. Um, so yes, it is a big deal. Uh, I I suggested that uh, we wouldn't actually see any action on this until the privacy groups uh, figured out a way to blame the United States for it. Uh, I'm sure they're working on that, uh, and it has something to do with Snowden. Uh, all right. Thanks to Maury Shank, to Gus Hurwitz, to Megan Reese for joining me. This has been episode 220 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, send us uh, your ideas for interview subjects, and we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Um, you can send those suggestions to Cyber Law Podcast. That's all one word at Steptoe.com. Uh, if you want to hear your voice on the um, uh, Cyber Law Podcast and you've got a message or a suggestion or a correction or particularly attain, uh, entertaining abuse, uh, call us at 202-862-5785 and leave a message. That's 862-5785. Uh, uh, Wednesday, I am going to be doing a, a Reddit Ask Me Anything uh, on uh, uh, the Legal Advice channel. Um, uh, so if you're interested in uh, providing real-time feedback uh, uh, on this and earlier uh, podcast episodes, that's the place to do it, 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, and I want to thank... Uh, the uh, uh, Reddit legal advice moderator, Zankt Mayo. Uh, uh, that, uh, so he's doing something MAO, uh, but I have no idea what uh, Zankting is. Um, and we've got uh, the reason we didn't have an interview this uh, uh, week is that uh, uh, Secretary Nielsen had to change her schedule and I was the victim, uh, but we are going to try to get Kirsten Nielsen back on uh 
Also coming up, uh, Michael Hayden talking about his new book and his experiences uh, in uh, uh, in government. Uh, and finally, uh, a new innovation, show credits. I want to thank Lori Paul and Christy uh, Jorge, uh, who are our producers. I want to ch- thank Jeff Kessler, who's here in studio as our audio engineer. And um, for those of you who were hoping to become interns uh, uh, on the podcast, Michael Beaver has taken your job. Uh, he is here, uh, and we thank him for the uh, enthusiasm and energy and new ideas he's brought to the podcast, including the idea of show credits, uh, which are a little self-serving, isn't it, Michael? Uh, okay, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. We hope you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.